Good morning, everyone. I am old enough to have nine, uh, 11 grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and three on the way. So <laughs> I've been around a while. Uh, today we're talking about choice flower and offering. There's a little town in Kansas called Hudson, and in that town there's a place called Hudson Creamery, and they do flour mainly. I think they used to do cream. I'm not sure it's even on the shelf anymore, but it was the finest flour you could buy. My grandfather and my family, we lived in Stafford, Kansas, about uh, probably about 10 miles south of there, and my grandfather was a farmer and he grew wheat and alfalfa and maize and that sort of thing. So Hudson Creamery would want his flour, he, he, uh, his, his wheat, because he had the finest wheat in the county of Stafford. And uh, the reason was, was because he never used chemical fertilizers. He never used chemical weed killers. My cousins and I, we'd go out on his... About that time, the wheat was pretty high. It wasn't the, the, little, the little stuff we got nowadays. But you could see the rye growing in there, so we'd go out and we'd pull all the rye so it wouldn't be in the, in the wheat field. Weeds, we didn't have to because they were too low and the, and, the, and the combine wouldn't catch it anyway. His combine was pulled by a tractor. And uh, we just... But he did farm... get the choicest wheat of the, of the county, and uh, that's a choice flower, a choice offering. So the, today, uh, on page 7, you'll find the scripture Leviticus 2, 1 through 3, from the Common English Bible. When anyone presents a grain offering to the Lord, the offering must be of choice flour. They must pour oil on it and put frankincense on it, then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. A priest will take a handful of its choice flour and oil along with all its frankincense and will completely burn that token portion of the flour as a good gift of soothing smell to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons as the most holy portion from the Lord's food gifts. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. as I said at the beginning, we're in our stewardship series, and we're talking about various offerings that are mentioned in the book of Leviticus. We're talking about not necessarily the offerings themselves and how we might practice them, but more about the nature of these offerings and what we might learn from them, and how we respond to God and to others through our time, our talent, our treasure. So last week we talked about the practice of offering something to God that would cost us something cost us of our time, our talent, our treasure, that it would be a gift that would stretch us to the point that it becomes the perfect gift that we could offer to God. This week we're going to look at the nature of our offering as described as a choice offering. Now, of course, in the book of Leviticus, choice refers back to that same idea as what we read last week. Choice means the best offering that you could give, the perfect animal from your herd or your flock, the finest flour or the finest oil that you could gain from your harvest. It's the premium. It's the finest gift that you could offer to God in the book of Leviticus. But when I think about it, the word that I want to focus on in the scripture is the beginning of the scripture, the very first word that says when. When you bring an offering. Because the word when implies that humans have responded. They've made a choice in that moment. So let's think of choice as decision points 
that we might make today when it comes to the offerings that we bring to God. Now, maybe one of the blessings and the cursings of being human is, is that God has given us this free will to enable us to make choices. And probably some of our choices we're pretty happy with, and others of our choices we'd like do-overs. Amen? Oh, come on, all of you wanted at least one do-over, right? <laughs> at least one in life, right? But you think about Genesis chapter 3 tells us that Adam and Eve were given the choice. The choice to follow God and to be in relationship with God or the choice to eat of the fruit that they were not supposed to eat of. And they made a choice, right? All of us know that we have that same power. We have the power to choose. We, over our lives, have made a series of choices that have brought us to this point. We'll continue to make choices today and tomorrow and all the rest of our days that will guide us on our journey. They are choices we will live with and we'll make the best out of. All of us make choices. But we also know that there are moments in life where we have no choice whatsoever when it comes to certain things that transpire, right? You have no choice over who your parents are, right? You have no choice in that. You have no choice where you were born, when you were born, what part of the country or world you were born in. You have no choice over how many siblings you either have or don't have. You have no choice as to where you are in the birth order in your siblings, if you have any. You have no choice over how many places your parents moved you over the years of growing up, right? You have no choices in the household that they selected. You had no choices in the rules that they established for you. You had no choice. Some of us, we even had no choice over our own grooming and clothing styles growing up as well, right? My parents, I've told you before, my parents own land outside of Butler. My family's had this land for well over 100 years. We call it the farm, but it really hasn't been farmed for decades. And so there's a small portion that's still in crop, but most all of us, is it's trees now, and people hunt on it more than anything else. But, but growing up, my parents and us kids, we, we would go to Butler at least one weekend a month, maybe a little bit more frequently. Now, the trip from South Kansas City to Butler is a pretty easy little trip, a little about 50, 55 miles or so. And for the most part, it was a pretty quiet ride. My parents had five kids. Four of us would be in the back seat. My youngest brother always got the middle between my parents and the front seat. And so we'd, we'd have moments where we would bicker, and my father would say to us that proverbial line, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to stop this car and come get you, right? Or I'm going to turn around and go home. Now, on the Saturdays where Dad was headed into town, we were praying that he would turn around and go home, right? Because when we got into to Passaic and, and exited off of 71 into Passaic, it was the next five miles of tenuous, tension for us boys because we were wondering. If Dad got to H Highway on the north part of, the, of town and turned left, that meant we were headed out to the farm. If Dad kept going, that meant we were headed to the square. And there was only two places that my dad went to on the square. One of them was the barber shop. And if dad was going to go get a haircut, that meant us boys were getting a haircut as well. Now, for those of you who remember the 60s and the 70s growing up, was short hair in style for men? Or was it going out of style and giving way to more the, the longer shaggy look, right? And, of course, us boys, we didn't want to be in the out crowd. We wanted to be in the in crowd, right? So we, we were a little nervous about Dad going to the barber shop, and we were praying that he wasn't going to the barber shop on that day. 
The other place that my dad would go visit was a store called Levy's. Now, Levy's was a clothing store, among many other things. And my dad was a Levi's 501 button-fly straight-legged jean guy. And if he was, and those were good enough for him, they were good enough for his sons. Right? How many of you remember the style for jeans in the 60s and the 70s? Stovepipes weren't exactly it, right? Bell-bottoms were coming into style. And, of course, my dad, you know, when you have no economic choice as a child, you get what your parents buy you, and so we had no choice in the matter. You think about these moments where, in your life, you really just don't have much of a choice. Things happen in your life, and you don't have a choice. It might have been the moment that you lost a loved one. It might have been an unexpected loss of a loved one. It might have been a moment where you were caught off guard. You thought you were safe and secure in a relationship, and all of a sudden that relationship breaks down, and, and you're unaware of it, and you're caught off guard by that breakup, and you had no choice in it. If you've ever been terminated from a job, and you weren't expecting to be terminated from a job, you know what that feels like as having no choice as well, right? Well, the unexpected diagnosis of a, of a major illness or a disease and how it impacts you and your family and the fact that you have no choice over what is transpiring. Worst of all is to stand by and watch powerlessly as maybe one of your loved ones suffers an injury or something like that, and you have no choice. You can't do much but just be there and console. All of us know these moments in our lives where we feel like we are powerless. We are left in this without a choice. Now, on the flip side, I think we could all tell stories about the choices we have made. We have power to make certain choices in our lives. But when we think about the theme for today and the human struggle that we have, it comes around those times where we have no power, no choice over matters and circumstances. The only power that we do have, friends, is how we will respond. We have the power to choose how we will respond in the moments where we feel like we are powerless. As much as we want to be proactive in our lives, it isn't 100% possible for us. There are just simply moments where we are on the reactive end of some of these life circumstances. Now, in matters of our relationship to God, I think we Christians will proclaim together that we know we don't get to make the rules when it comes to our relationship with God. We don't even really get to negotiate with God about some of these things. We know that God has crafted a certain set of parameters for us humans. We find them written in our holy texts that we read, and we believe that we're supposed to follow some of those things. Now, other aspects of our life, we know that we can negotiate. My two grandsons are great master negotiators, right? We ask them to do something, and, and often it becomes a negotiation with them as to whether it's going to happen the way that we envision. Now, me, personally, I would prefer just simply to say, boys, this is the way it is, and they say to me, oh, yay, Grandpa, no problem. How often do you think that happens? Very rarely, right? Yeah. Now, most of the time, I'm off uh, over by myself, and the two of them are negotiating with Nana, because she's good at negotiating with them. I'm not. I just go along for the ride after things are, are decided. Or should I say I begrudgingly go along for the ride after things are decided, right? Because I don't get my way in some things. But, but you think about the choice that you have and you make. When it comes to God, we know that we don't get to make rules. We don't get to negotiate with God. And neither did the ancient Hebrews. 
right? If you think about the folks that, that God liberated from Egypt, called Moses to liberate, now finds themselves wandering in this community, and they're setting up these laws and these parameters on how they are to behave, God is the one who defines these things for them. God is the one who tells them how it will be and sets it up in order for them. Even the offerings of when, where, what, how, and why, these things are determined by God as his commands for the people. The people did not get to negotiate with God on these things. God made the rules. The people had no choice in the matter. The people only could choose how they respond. So when? When implies that the people choose to respond to God and to bring to God an offering of their finest so that it might be pleasing to God. To bring an offering implies that they are willing to obey the conditions of the offering for it to be acceptable and for it to be pleasing to God. In Leviticus 2, of course, it's, it's the finest. It's the best flower that they could bring. It was the costliest flower that they could bring. It cost them time. It cost them effort to bring that kind of flower. The tilling of the soil, the sowing of the seed, the harvesting the mature wheat, the threshing of the grain, the grinding, the sifting, all that must go into that to be able to bring the finest, choicest flower to give it as a gift to God. But it not only cost them in time and material, it cost them because grain, particularly wheat grain, was the most precious commodity of their time and their day. So they gave their very best in the finest of flour. God commanded that that be the offering that be made. God set the conditions of these offerings. The people had the choice to obey that and bring their finest. When anyone presents an offering to, an, to the Lord, meets the conditions that God has set. Now the question I think we wrestle with today is, is do we believe that these commands, these parameters, are still in place for us as God's people? That there is a certain set of parameters by which we give our best to the Lord so that it might be a pleasing smell, if you want to use those words from, from Leviticus. Do we believe that God has set these conditions around it? Or do we feel like we're a little freer in these? Now I want to propose to you that I think there's some stages of response that we as God's people make when it comes to our offerings, when we bring to God these gifts. We come for a variety of different perspectives on these. Some of us may come from the more liberal perspective or the freer perspective and says that maybe because we're a New Testament crowd of people who believe that, that we are free from the laws, then we're free from maybe the parameters of these laws as well. And so for us, we determine ourselves individually what's the best gift that we can give, and we give that each and every week. That might be one way in which we can look at these scriptures. The Old Testament is for an ancient people. The New Testament we are free in, and we are free in God's grace, so we get to choose a little bit more broadly how we practice the giving of our time, our talent, our treasure. Now, honestly, that's one way to look at it. I've never heard it preached that way. But you've got to remember, I grew up in the Baptist tradition. Right? Baptists are a little bit more literal about these things. Another way that we could, could approach this when we think about bringing our gifts is we could certainly rationalize a little bit when it comes to our gifts as well. Because we know that in our lives, our busy, complicated, 21st century lives, we have a lot of priorities that we are trying to maintain. We may not be able to live into an old standard of 10% of our time 
our talent, our treasure. It might be early in our career. It might be just starting to build a life together as a young couple. We might have plans to retire early or move up. We might have multiple mouths to feed. We might have many places in which we want to be generous. Or we might be on the, the other end of this scale where we're on a more fixed income. And then as the income doesn't increase, of course, the cost of living does increase. And we find ourselves trapped in this. And so we have to rationalize a little bit how we give our best to God. And we may want to give 10%, but we might not have the capacity yet to give that 10%. Besides, if everybody gave 10% to the church, we wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. <laughs> or so we might believe. There's a story about a guy who's a, a founder of an organization that helps churches with uh, stewardship campaigns. And, and he talks about being early in his career and being set uh, in, in an organization where he's a fundraiser and it's a hospital. And, the, and his boss sends him out on a mission to go visit and have lunch with one couple in particular... And his task is to ask this couple for a half-million-dollar gift to the hospital. Right? So he takes his couple out for lunch. They're sitting down, and they are eating. They get to the salad portion of the meal. He's nervous. This is his first time ever having to ask for this size of a gift. And so he's a little nervous. The couple are sitting there. They're just enjoying their salad. Him, not so much. He'd take a bite. He'd try to chew on it a little bit, a little hard to swallow, and then he'd take a drink of water. And then he'd take another bite, and he'd chew on it a little bit more, and he'd finally get to the point where he could swallow, and he'd take another drink. And he kept doing this over and over. The wife kind of caught up on these ver you know, nonverbal cues, and she looked at him, and she said, You know, my husband and I, we have decided that we are going to give three over the next three years. And Kai says his heart just sank, because she preempted it. He's there to ask her for a half million dollars, and she just told him they're only going to give 300000 over the next three years. She could just see the disappointment on his face, and she says, oh, no, no, I think you misunderstand me. My husband and I are going to give $3 million over the next three years. And he just kind of looks at her quizzically, and she says, son, you need to do a better job of knowing your audience when you come to talk to them in their capacity, right? He said the lunch continued on. He felt a little bit better because now all of a sudden he's got six times the gift that he was sent out there to get, right, in their commitment. But then he looks at them in the, in, a little bit later in lunch and he says to them, i got a question for you. Have you ever thought about giving that size of a gift to your local church? And the wife looked at him and said, heavens no. Our church wouldn't know what to do with that kind of gift right? Guess what, friends? If you've got that much money to give to St. John's, we'll figure out what to do with it. <laughs> All right? So please plan on that. But you think about it, we have that kind of rationalization that we might not, you know, giving that kind of thing to an organization might not be the best way for us to give our gifts. Now, as I said, I grew up in the Baptist tradition. I grew up in the literal tradition. And so for me, that comes with a certain set of understandings around your gift. Tithing is the standard, 10%. That's the baseline standard and what the tradition I grew up in. Offerings are everything that are above your tithe. And so we were, we were instructed in that. We were ingrained in that to try to live that out. That's what it meant for us to be faithful in the tradition that I grew up in. And it might be for some of you as well. But for us to learn what it means to be extravagantly generous and to practice that as our best offering and gift to God, to make a choice to do that. There's a guy by the name of R.G. Letourneau. 
Archie Letourneau was a prolific inventor of earth-moving machinery. He has 299 patents for different kinds of equipment. So things like the bulldozer, various earth scrapers, dredges, portable cranes, rollers, dump wagons, bridge spans, logging equipment. He was one that was on the forefront of mobile sea platforms that could be used for oil exploration, electronic wheel. All these kinds of things R.G. Letourneau was involved in the creation of or creating. When he got married, he and his wife, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, decided that they were going to give away 1% of their income for every year that they were married. So when they got to their 10th anniversary, they were giving away 10%. They were giving 10% to their local church. That was their tithe. That's what they believed in. But they didn't stop there. By their 58th wedding anniversary, Mr. and Mrs. Letourneau were giving away 58% of their income to not only their church, but also the charities that they wanted to endow. They believed in this literal command of God to be generous, to be extravagantly generous. They committed and put in, uh, in, in a path, put in a plan and a path to be able to live into those things because that's what it meant for them to be faithful followers of Christ. As a community of faith and people here at St. John's who proclaim to be followers of Christ, I naturally assume that all of us want to be ones who are generous, extravagantly generous, and we want to give our best to God. We are working on that and we are trying to be faithful to that. To be generous to God to the point that we are blessing the body of Christ that is here. For some of us that may even mean giving at 10% of our time, our talent, our treasure. Others of us beyond it. Others of us we're working a plan to be able to know that we are giving extravagantly. But to know that we are doing so as a way of honoring God and helping the work of God in the I would simply suggest, dear friends, that all of us have the power to respond to this. And I pray that more and more of us are going to choose to respond in a way that we believe is faithful representation of what God desires from us. And that we become extravagantly generous to our faith community and the world beyond. So let me... Let me challenge you a little bit to think about what's going to be required of us to live into this. I think the first thing is, is I think we have to probably do a little bit of self-analysis, right? What is it that you believe about generosity? What have you been taught? And what have you been practicing? What is a sign and a practice of Christian discipleship for you? And how are you living into that? How are you showing and demonstrating that you are a faithful follower of Christ? We need to know ourselves and what forms and shapes us. And then to prayerfully respond. To be a people who, if we, if we conclude and we believe that generosity is a sign and a practice of Christian discipleship, then for us to make a bold commitment to respond accordingly and to follow and, and be a persistent follower of that. To challenge ourselves, to live in to the standard that we believe that God is calling us to. As Joshua and the people of Israel said at Shechem, Choose this day whom you will follow. As for me and my house, we choose to follow the Lord. Will you join me now as we pray? So merciful God, we come in this moment, knowing that laying before us is a choice and how we will be generous. Generous not only to the world that is around us, but generous to you. You have given us so much. In our In our prayers and in our confession, we believe that that you have given us everything. 
we might simply be stewards of that, and that we're responsible for all that, that we inhabit and all that you have given us. And that a sign of faithfulness is for us to give back a portion to you and to your work. Lord, help us as, as we think about this and as we talk about it in our family units. Help us to think and to pray over what would be generous for us, extravagantly generous, that would stretch us and become that perfect gift to you. And then help us to commit to it. Not only commit to it, help us, O oh God, by your Spirit to live into it. So that at the end of the day, we will hear from you good and faithful servant. For those are the words that we desire to hear. And so, Lord, we know that this is one portion. It is an important portion of who we are. Pray, O oh God, that your spirit be with us, leading and guiding us, and give us the power to respond in Christ's name.